You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 3, the 1905 production of The Merry Widow. And with us today is the author of that chapter, Andrew Child. Andrew Child is a multi-hyphenate artist whose work is a director, animator, choreographer, performer, and designer, has been seen on stages and screens all over Boston, Argentina, and Italy. He has also worked as an arts writer with a focus on Boston's complete arts ecosystem and as a guest artist for institutions such as MIT, Emerson College, New England Conservatory, Clark University, and NYU. Andrew, I'm so happy that you're with us today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Andrew, uh, what makes The Merry Widow a key musical? Hmm. The Merry Widow, and I was so excited to be able to write about it for this book in this context. I think The Merry Widow is one of those shows where we can actually quantify its direct influence on American musical theater. We're talking about a show that was this huge international sensation um, that it's actually hard to quantify the impact that it had on culture, on society. In its premiere in Austria, it takes Europe by storm. It comes to the United States and it's there's an absolute mania about it. It's this predecessor in so many ways to the mega musical um, and the national tour in a franchised way that we're not really going to see again to this extent until the 1980s, until we're talking Cats and Phantom and Les Mis and Miss Saigon, that we have this franchise that has souvenirs that has the sheet music being sold, that has dance arrangements being sent out to different social clubs, that has a brand of cigars, that has cocktails themed around it, that has sandwiches themed around it. Um, and particularly, it becomes this societal icon in the mainstream. And we've got a London production being designed by Lucille Duff Gordon as the costume designer. And 
this is the woman who eventually is going to invent the fashion show. She is the designer who's going to uh, create the flapper look, you know? And of course, we talk about the flapper being this subversive counterculture in the 20s, but it still, it has to come from somewhere. It has to come, someone has to design that. Someone has to give this group of empowered women their look. And Lucille Duff Gordon sort of predecesses her own work, creating that look with this idea of this leading female character. She's older and she's merry and she's a widow and she's the lead character in this show. And she has sort of a dropped waist look that sort of predates the flapper. So a little bit tangential, but I did just want to hit on like how like huge this was. And the reason that this is a key musical is because we have this obsession with this show. We have everyone doing it. We have unauthorized prequels, unauthorized sequels, unauthorized crappy translations, all of this going on. And then this mania is at its peak and Europe enters the Great War. And even before the United States is officially involved in the Great War, our sort of natural alliance and public sympathies obviously go to England. Um, and so it becomes unpatriotic to have the Merry Widow be on stage, to be supporting it, to be enjoying it even, because we're talking Australia. Austria, Hungary, we're talking Eastern Europe, we're talking the enemy now. And so I think this show is key, not only because it was such a smash success, it was such a cultural icon, but it's also key because then it suddenly had to go away. It suddenly had to disappear. And that's where we can quantifiably say, all right, we've got this popular music. We've got this unified storyline. We've got these dual romantic characters running side by side. And now when we can't do that anymore, we need to start producing homegrown American iterations of this. And that's where we can look through a biography of Rogers and Hammerstein. We can look through Jerome Kern and we can see that the Merry Widow influenced them and was Sorry, that's me. And we can see that the Merry Widow influenced them and was a direct influence on their work. And what made you want to codify this musical out of all the other musicals that were out there? Why did you want to tell this story? I have a really, I think, special relationship with the Merry Widow the first time that I ever saw it was in a really great production in Boston, the Boston Lyric Opera. This Argentinian-American playwright, uh, Lillian Grogue, uh, reworked the libretto, and she also directed it. Um, she kind of wanted to, everything I just hit upon, she wanted to bring to the forefront of her production. So she created this multilingual libretto that, it's, you know, it's an operetta, so it's sung and it's spoken. She had different characters, different moments in French, in Hungarian, 
in so many different languages and she just made it this melting pot and she really wanted to comment on this idea that there's this beautiful lively happy madcap merry musical taking the world by storm and they don't even know that a couple years down the road the world is not going to look like that at all and that we're going to launch into uh, a decade a century whatever of tumult and poverty and violence um, that the world has not really seen before but I was so taken by this production, so taken by the way that she commented on the turn of the century, a globalizing world. And I fell in love with the music, obviously, which is so haunting, so staying, so iconic. And then a couple of years after I had seen this production, something that again made The Merry Widow special to me was I had a professor in college and she was complaining about The Merry Widow. She was a set designer for a repertory opera company in upstate New York. And another thing about The Merry Widow is, you know, it's still regularly performed today. It's still in so many of the world's great opera repertoires. Um, and the idea with this specific company was they were doing three shows in rep and two of them that summer were these really avant-garde, contemporary, dark, new pieces, like really strange stuff. I remember looking at the librettos and one of them just straight up did not understand what was happening. It was something about little birds inside boxes and they were all racing each other. I don't know. Um, but of course, strange and everyone was going to be in like a black turtleneck sitting in a metal folding chair singing like that kind of thing. Um, if that is a kind of thing. And basically to bankroll these other two weirdo contemporary new operas, they were also mounting a surefire hit, The Merry Widow. And so she was miserable because she was designing the sets for all three. And these other two were so in her wheelhouse, uh, but she also had to do The Merry Widow. And so I think in listening to her talking about how am I going to make a set that can be used in its base form for all three of these shows. I really got to rediscover The Merry Widow, fall in love with it. And so when the opportunity came to talk about a show that I feel is key, uh, that's kind of where my mind went. That's what I was thinking about with The Merry Widow. Can you give us a little context on uh, the turn of the 20th century where uh, we're looking at operetta? Where, what, how does Mary Widow compare to other operettas that are going on at this particular time? Yeah, so we're just coming away from Wagner's grand opera, really. So he's kind of on his last legs. Uh, and he's someone, when we talk about the grand opera, who revolutionized the form. He designed his own theater. He directed his own shows and he really kind of pioneered this idea that it's like you're not at the opera to be seen you're at the opera to shut up sit down and watch my show so he's using the latest in gas technology to be able to turn the lights out on the audience 
and put lights on the stage. He's also using the latest in steam technology to get all kinds of mystical spooky effects and that technology has a really fascinating uh, effect on the content of the operas being made and so we see contemporarily with Wagner in addition to Wagner himself we're seeing a lot of dark we're seeing a lot of spooky we're seeing a lot of in line with the romantics a lot of ephemeral subject matter we're talking ghosts we're talking nordic legends you know we're talking all kinds of things with smoke and steam and all that good stuff and so we're kind of coming away from that and but we like this idea of the audience is going to be in darkness we're going to have light on the stage and then we're talking coming away from that uh defle de mouse which is considered a really great groundbreaking comic operetta and i think the leg up that mary widow has on deflator mouse is deflator mouse really is still like a musical comedy in the derogatory sense <laughs> of the term no offense you know we like musical comedy but we don't have the unified story just yet with deflator mouse uh so we have you know, an opening to one of the acts, we have this long-winded comedic monologue by the jailer, or we have an ode to beer at one point. We have all these songs that have no real connection to the story that are just sort of offshoots, and we just want to include them. So when we talk Merry Widow, coming away from that, we're talking about Franz Lehar, the composer who has a background in... Uh, military marches. That's what he was mostly composing. That's what his father wanted him doing. And he sort of takes the form. He's got this story that he's working with um, illegally. They did not license the play that this was based on. And he gives us a unified narrative. It's funny. It's comical. It has dialogue interwoven. But every single song in the show has to do with the story, has to do with this emotional backbone of one of the two lovers' stories, either the main story with Hannah Glowari, the the Merry Widow, or with the ingenue kind of side plot characters. And for those of us who might be unfamiliar with the Merry Widow, because mm -hmm. if you're a fan of musical theater, this doesn't enter the repertoire too often. Right. Uh, can you give us just a short synopsis of what is going on in the in the Merry Widow? Yeah, basically, we have Hannah, who is a wealthy widow uh, living in Pontevedro, and which is a like sneaky. It's supposed to be like Montenegro, and she is very wealthy, and was left a lot of money from her deceased husband. Thus, she's a widow, and there's this thought among the Pontevedrian officials and the elite that she is going to marry someone French. Thus, her money is going to exit their nation state with her and pretty much bankrupt Pontevedro. And so they hatch this whole scheme to have these parties and set her up with a former lover who, newsflash, she actually still has feelings for. 
and hilarity ensues as they try and set her up with this guy essentially to keep her money within their domain got it um you know one of the things that uh, i find interesting when i'm teaching younger students uh who don't really come from the world of operetta or have no mm-hmm. in- interest in it is if i play them a song from an operetta or I show them a clip of an operetta um they just sort of roll their eyes and have mm. no understanding of of what's going on. And sometimes I'll be honest, I'm with them as well. <laughs> can you can you make a case for why operetta uh, has sort of fallen out of fashion? And should it be brought back into uh, the repertoire? Mm. Well, I mean, I think with Merry Widow, we have a couple key songs that uh, to say they've fallen out of fashion is just to sort of uh erase the fact that they are a template that later musical theater songs really follow particularly uh what comes to mind is uh Vilia Lide which is sort of supposed to be this Pontevedrian folk number that Hannah sings and it's just so lilting and haunting and beautiful um and it's still in standard opera repertoires uh Dumer Dumer Reitersmen which is usually translated as uh, silly, silly cavalier or silly, silly, silly little soldier boy, excuse me, which is this sort of coy lovers duet going back and forth, which I think we see repackaged in something like Oklahoma, um, All or Nothing, or even um, what's it called in Oklahoma? Um, People will say we're in love. I was thinking of... uh, carousel if i loved you if i loved you right which same thing it's kind of this back and forth this hypothetical this teasing each other love song so i think that when we look at these songs in context as templates for these later works that we do celebrate that we're you know you're not going to go and see a student showcase that doesn't hit on one of these songs. You're going to see them in cabaret performances. I think something that prevents these works from being included in the standard musical theater repertoire is also that they're written for opera singers. You know, again, we're dealing with a guy whose background is military marches. He's orchestrating this for uh, an orchestra way bigger than what a college is going to spring for for their little showcase at the end of the year with a piano and maybe a drummer um and i think that so kelly o'hara did one of the roles valencian in susan stroman's production for the met recently and in all of her interviews she sort of talks about how yes she trained as an opera singer in undergrad, in school. This is what she studied. This is her background. Obviously, we know her for doing so many different legit soprano roles on Broadway and everywhere. She's really gotten around. But she talks about in her interviews being so intimidated by the other performers at the Metropolitan because that is a different type of training. It's a different level of care for an instrument 
They're working without microphones. They're doing all these different things that are so not standard for theater. And so I think that element does sort of prohibit these songs from standing alone within the musical theater repertoire because it has a foot in the grand opera tradition and it also has a foot in the musical theater tradition because conversely to Kelly O'Hara's interviews about working at the Met, when uh, Renee Fleming, who was playing the widow in that production, who is, you know, a grand dame of the opera stage, has played huge roles at the Met before, all of a sudden she's working with Susan Stroman and she's expected to move and to dance while she's singing in a way that she has never been expected to do before. And here's, you know, Kelly O'Hara, who can, you know, do the splits while belting a high C, you know, like it's just a totally different skill set. And we've really sort of itemized these two different worlds. And I think that's where we kind of see these pieces of operetta falling in the middle. And when we've really separated these two art forms, it's hard for the Merry Widow to find legs to stand on. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What case would you make, for, regardless of where it's being performed, even if it's being performed mm-hmm. at the Met, for uh, the inclusion of the Merry Widow in the 21st century, what is the universality of this piece that justifies it taking up a slot in the Metropolitan Opera season? I mean, I think from a historical context, everything that we've kind of touched upon that this was huge, this mattered, I think we'll always have a place for the Merry Widow. Um, Ironically, you know, the same season that Oklahoma is on Broadway, George Balanchine has a production of The Merry Widow opening on Broadway. I think it's an eternal piece that it's going to be everlasting because of how significant it was. And when we listen to this music, we can, whether we're listening for it or not, we can hear the influence on its immediate followers in this art form. We can also hear its influence in the works that are still being created today. So I think one, from a historical context, we still have reason to revive this show. We still have reason to see this show. Um, But then I also think that it's this pretty basic storyline. It is a farce. It's a silly, confusing character knowing less than the audience knows, which we enjoy, you know, we enjoy seeing people in these kind of madcap scenarios. So I think 
the libretto has had so much work done to it. Um, almost anyone who's going to attempt it is going to have a new libretto written for their production. And I think with that opportunity, you have such a great chance to showcase the performers you're working with, such a great opportunity to deliver something to your specific audience and know that this storyline with these melodies and these gorgeous orchestrations and these recognizable tunes that you're going to have a fun, pleasant, silly evening of early musical theater. As a director and writer yourself, uh, how would you approach putting this story on stage? Mm. Well, I will say that the production of this that made me fall in love with the show, now if I saw it again, I would have a different approach, I think. I think she went very handed, heavy-handed with it. I think that it was like a downer. Like you took this silly, light, fun, musical romp and you made it about war and you made it about, oh, haha, these people don't know what's coming. They don't know what's about to happen in the next century. And they're just here throwing confetti, drinking champagne, living their lives. Um, conversely, the Susan Stroman production at the Met does not touch upon any of that at all. Does not really wink, wink, give a nudge to the historical implications of presenting the Merry Widow. And she does what Susan Stroman does best. She gives us can-can girls with high kicks and she gives us beautiful costumes by William Ivy Long and uh, fabulous sets and bright lights and confetti and champagne. And it's fun. I would love to find something in between those two worlds. Um, I would also love to sort of work with people who really knew how to address, like we talked about, it's hard to land something between these two worlds because it's not a grand opera and it's it received a lot of criticism, it's production at the Met because there's so much speaking. There really is a book to this show. It's not sung through. So putting that on stage at the Met is hard. You know, uh, they ended up miking the performers for the lengthy scenes where they're talking, which uh, an opera audience doesn't like to see and isn't used to. And the Metropolitan uh, doesn't really have the system in place to do that. So they really struggled with that sound system. So I think finding a production that could you know honor the operatic elements of this show do them justice have the cast and the performers who have this training in this background to do this music justice but then bring it you know somewhere downtown bring it somewhere that it's in a smaller tighter space uh and, you know, smaller than the Met. So, you know, we're not talking like a black box and then belt everyone's faces off in the front row. Um, but somewhere that we can honor this also as a piece of musical theater, because I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, with saying that this is really more of a musical than it is a grand opera. So maybe we don't put this at the Met when it's in New York. Maybe this has to be somewhere in Times Square, you know? Got it. And 
you know, one of the things you were talking about is the major contribution of the Merry Widow, as I understand it, is it's the first uh, musical piece in which every element is moving the story forward mm -hmm. in some way or is, is central to the development of the characters and development of the plot. So we got that. Can we talk a little bit about the commercial aspect of it, which is the merchandising, this merchandising oh, yeah. craze? Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? And what exactly were they merchandising? Yeah, I mean, they had pretty much branded everything and wherever this show would go, because... Again, we touched upon the Lucille Duff Gordon designs for the London premiere. And pretty much wherever this show would go, women would want to dress like the Merry Widow. So she had a line of corsets. She, I mean, the Merry Widow. I mean, they were making bank selling corsets that were specifically, this is Hannah Glowari's. This is what she looks like. And I mean, beyond what we can quantify, sorry, I'm going off on a little tangent here. Mm -hmm of you know directly how this historically impacted musical theater i think dolly gallagher levi entering the harmonia gardens like it's a direct homage it's a direct lift off from uh act three uh entering shea maxine's for hannah in this show but yeah she's got that dropped waist so she's got this totally different look that was not what women were wearing and so they could merchandise anything big hats are the other thing that Hannah Glowari kind of heralded in and so women wanted to look like the merry widow and so from there it's just you could sell anything so there were merry widow cocktails there were um I forget what it is but there is a merry widow like tea sandwich I forget if it's like cucumber and mayonnaise something nasty um <laughs> There was a brand of cigars. There were liquors that were rebranded to be Merry Widow themed. And then on top of that, and most significantly, we've got the sheet music being pushed out, like really pushed out to the public. Like it's being rearranged as vocal arrangements for your sitting room so you can sing it with your family. And it's being rearranged in dance arrangements for all the clubs. And that was probably in researching this chapter, that was the most gratifying part was that I could search through all these databases for, you know, where are Kern, where are Rogers, where are Hammerstein mentioning the Merry Widow. And all three of them have concrete times when they talk about be either being with their family or being in a cafe and being struck by the beauty of this music and Richard Rogers, of course, it um, it's his childhood. It's that his mother's playing these songs on the piano and he's being brought up with them because he's younger, you know, than the other two. Um, so, yeah, so the merchandising, while it's, you know, we can roll our eyes and we can say, oh, wow. So they did, you know, they were Disney theatricals before Disney <laughs> theatricals was even a thing. Um Thank God for the merchandising, because it's that merchandising, it's that sale of just any ephemera from this show that really cemented this within the mainstream, the popular consciousness. So thank God that sheet music got out there. And if you're over 21 years of age and you want to enjoy a Merry Widow cocktail, the ingredients 
Ooh. are uh, dry vermouth, uh, Benedictine uh, bitters, absinthe, and lemon peel. It's a gin that's based. Intense. It's a gin. And, that's gin. Intense. Maybe that's why everyone loved the show so much because they were they, they were getting inebriated at the bar. Uh, up on that. One of the things I found so fascinating, uh, and I'm trying to think of other instances throughout history where we might have seen this, is that the Merry Widow was uh, censored in a lot of ways because of the First World War. Um, would you say that the Merry Widow was one of the first shows to be, quote unquote, canceled uh, because oh, interesting because of its uh, its authors and its sentiment? Well, and here's the thing, I guess, is that I guess canceled would be exactly the right word because it's, again, we can't really call it censorship. Like the American government didn't say, no, you can't put this show on stage. It's not allowed. It's anti-American sentiment, which obviously we see throughout theater. We see things like that happening. We see from the beginning, you know, governments saying, no, you can't say that. That word's not allowed. This was a popular public opinion just saying not even a boycott. It was just like, we don't, we don't want to see this anymore. It didn't fall out of fashion. It just totally shifted the context that it was being presented within because of what was going on in the world. So I guess saying that it was kind of canceled is exactly right because it wasn't this organized response to it. It was just people saying, we want something else. We want something different uh, because of XYZ, 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 external factors the show didn't change but our sentiments have changed and i'll throw in there this is just an interesting little tidbit although there's huge jewish involvement in the show and friends lahar's wife herself is jewish um this was a favorite of adolf hitler's he went to see the original production um i believe it's documented as three times but believed that he could have been there more that this was like really popular for him oh. so yeah so I understand why the show has fallen out of context over a, a number of different times. Right. World War One, then World right. War Two. Yeah. But that's not why it was canceled. And, you know, interestingly, um, we're seeing it again on Broadway uh, the same year that Oklahoma is coming out. So, again, it it ebbs and flows how Americans are feeling about Austria and Germany and Hungary. It really ebbs and flows here. Andrew, my last question for you is, mm -hmm. is can you pinpoint other shows that if we had not had the Merry Widow, we would not have had fill in the blank? Yes, yes. And the reason I can is because that was a whole part of the chapter that I wrote that I then had to say, this is, <laughs> this is all very much speculation. Like, I can't really, this is just my, my opinion. This is my belief. But, you know, speculate the away. One, speculate I will away. speculate away. Yeah. Uh, the big one for me is Hello, Dolly, that that character wouldn't exist. This idea of this older woman being celebrated as this eccentric, as this as this widow, you know, um, and then just down to her costume design, which, again, it feels more like an homage. It feels like there's an awareness there that there is this tradition of the Merry Widow character. I think that, like I had mentioned before, um, Doomer Doomer Reitersman, I think that that 
sets up the coy, flirtatious, hypothetical love song that is so synonymous with Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think they definitely, it can still be synonymous with them. I'm not saying they stole it, but I do think that it wouldn't exist without Doomer Doomer Righteous Men. Um, I think that this idea of having the, obviously from Shakespeare, from way, way back, we've got the comedic love plot running alongside the more serious love plot. But this idea where the two stories are interconnected and dependent upon each other, I don't think it comes from The Merry Widow, but I think that The Merry Widow does that well. I think we see that really hitting its peak with Guys and Dolls, something like that. Um, And then, like I said before, other than the artistic influence, this business model, we see it now, you know, and that's what every show kind of tries to be or what every show's PR team wants it to be. You know, I'm sure if... Moulin Rouge could take off with a huge cocktail its PR team would be all over it right now you know um so I think yeah artistically from a public relations standpoint from a cultural standpoint it just it sets the mold in so many different ways well it's so fascinating to see all of these things that surround us on a daily basis uh switch I mean you can go into the drama bookshop which is pretty mm-hmm. much you know Hamilton central in in terms of memorabilia that you can buy and that's not a pejorative thing it's just an example so it's so cool i think or it's so interesting i should say to see how all of these things that surround us today all emanated from this operetta from over a hundred years ago so Mm. thank you so much for drawing such a clear link from the past to the present and andrew thank you so much for joining us today It was an absolute pleasure um, friends, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about The Merry Widow, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theatre community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theatre professionals, search the RISE Theatre Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheatre.org. That's theatre with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.